Please take your Bible and turn to the book of Nehemiah, chapter number 8 today, and I continue with the series of messages that I've been bringing to you for several weeks now on a shelf by itself, the Bible. On a shelf by itself, no other book compares to the Word of God, the Bible. And today I had a couple of titles that I was letting rattle around in my mind. One of them was, the main one was rebuilding on the Word of God because they rebuilt a country here on the Word of God. But to apply it to our local congregation, I might call it the proper attitude toward the Word of God. And I really want you to listen to this today and check your attitude. Check your personal view and perspective of God's Word this morning, a proper attitude toward the Word of God. And I'm going to read to you the text from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. May I ask you one more time, please, to stand to your feet? Follow with me in the Bible, please. Chapter 8, Nehemiah, verse 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man under the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive under the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. Beside him on that platform was Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Urijah, Hilkiah, Messiah, On his right hand and on the left hand, Padiah, Mishael, Malchiah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. People that you're all very familiar with, right? Okay. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And that's why we stand here. Right there is the scriptural warrant for standing when the Word of God is read. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up of their hands. And they bowed their heads. They worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah and Jamin and Akub and Shabbateah and Hodijah and Maaseah and Kalita and Azariah and Jozebed and Hanan and Peliah and the Levites caused the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. And so they read in the book and the law of God distinctly. And they gave the sense 
and caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, and that's Hebrew for governor, Nehemiah, who is the governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God, mourn not nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. And neither be ye sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy. They silenced the people. Shh, they said, Hold your peace. Be quiet. Let's be silent. The day is holy. And neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable unto you, Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. I ask in the name of Christ. Amen. And you may be seated. In 586... I usually just try to remember it about 600 years before Jesus Christ came to the earth. A man named Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man of his day, came down from Babylon where he was the emperor, the king, and he destroyed the city of Jerusalem after his soldiers had laid siege to it for quite a long period of time. And he carried... He carried away many of the people, and so begins what we know as the Babylonian exile. A great number of the people of Israel in exile, 900 miles from their home in ancient Babylon. He left the city in ruins. He killed thousands of the people, all of the children and all of the older people primarily, He took the young and the able-bodied that can make a 900-mile trip to Babylon. He took them back, and he made them captives, depending on what their prior uh, experience had been. If they were uh, able to work in the bureaucracy, he used them there as Daniel and his friends. Some of them were made slaves. Others became almost like independent business people. And the largest Jewish settlement in the world was at that time in Babylon where the people were living. That exile lasted for 70 years, the Babylonian captivity. Why did God allow that to happen? Don't you think there were some people around then writing books on why does God allow bad things to happen to good people and stuff like that? I'm sure they did. I'll tell you why God permitted the nation of Israel to be overthrown. Because God used a wicked nation, Babylon, as his agent of justice, as his long arm of the law, if you will, to reach out and to punish his people for their disobedience. Specifically in the Bible, he talks about their disobedience. 
their idolatry where they had begun to worship other gods. The Sabbath day that they had ceased to worship God upon and carry out the rituals that he had prescribed. And now the Sabbath day had been turned into a day of pleasure and a day of doing their own things. In fact, the 70-year captivity was based upon the fact of how many Sabbath days and weeks that the people had exploited for their own use. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, there were other sins, but those two are particularly pointed out, the idolatry and the breaking of the Sabbath. And at the end of that 70 years, the then king named Cyrus, king of Persia at that time, Cyrus gave permission for the Jews to return to the homeland and to resume their normal way of life. He issued an edict in about 516 before Christ that gave them the permission to return. And God used two men in particular to lead this return of the Jews to their homeland. The first one was Ezra. And the preceding book in the Bible from where I read is called the book of Ezra, written by him. Ezra is one of the most notable figures in the Bible. He doesn't get much attention today, but he should get a lot more. Ezra was a priest, and he also was a scribe. He occupied two very important positions in the country. And Ezra, we believe, was really the custodian of the Scriptures in those days that the, Jew, the priesthood had put Ezra in charge of keeping the Word of God, probably the most solemn position that anyone on the earth had at that time. So he led about 50,000 Jews back home to Jerusalem, and they began to try to rebuild the city and the nation. About 11 or 12 years after Ezra began going back in his return, God touched the heart of another man who was also a leader. His name was Nehemiah. Nehemiah was an official in the king's court, the court of Artaxerxes at the time he went back. And he heard about that the walls had been torn down and the temple had been destroyed and and the city had been sacked and burned. And God put upon him a vision to go back and to rebuild the city, the entire city, the walls and the structure of it. And so under his leadership, the walls were rebuilt. Houses were constructed for the people to live in. They began the construction of the temple. Normal family life resumed there in the city of Jerusalem, but there was something really badly missing. And it was the spiritual. There was an emptiness in the heart of the people. And so Nehemiah and Ezra undoubtedly conferred and talked about this and had a great burden for the spiritual life of the people, this void that was in the hearts of these people at that time. They desperately needed a touch from God. They desperately needed revival. And you already know where I could go in the application here because we have a nation that worships other idols that desecrates God's day with abandon now. And we have a nation that's gone far from God. And uh, Mr. Roseman and I were talking before the service, and the question was, what would it take to restore this country to what it, it always has been? And the answer is very simple, one word, 
a spiritual revival among the people of God. We are desperate this morning for that revival, aren't we? In fact, I think our long-term survival as a nation depends on the church, the church is, the people of God. Are we going to return to the faith of our fathers or are we not? And as you know, that's a big emphasis here. Now, I want to point out to you about five things in the passage that I read to you based upon the background that I've just shared. Number one, I want you to see the hunger for the Word of God that these people had. And I'm going to read it again. The people gathered, verse 1, they gathered themselves together as one man. We see unity there. Into the street that was before the water gate, not the one in Washington, but the one where they went to get their water in Jerusalem. And they spake unto Ezra the priest, and they said to him, bring the book of the law of Moses. Why did they say that? They didn't all have a Bible like we have today. And so there was the copies of the Word of God that were at the temple under Ezra's custodianship. Bring the book of the law of God that the Lord hath commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, the men, the women, all that could hear with understanding, meaning they brought the children that were old enough to understand what, what he would be talking about. And it's very specific. On a date certain, the first day of the seventh month, this was a real space-time event that occurred in the life of the people of Israel. And so they gathered here with their children. Many Bible scholars believe there were, there were about 30,000 people in attendance that day. Ezra, the priest scribe, leading this. Nehemiah, there lending support. And they bring the scroll, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, we call it, the writings of Moses, the law. It has many names in the Bible. And they bring that to that great gathering of people. And they begin to read the Word of God to the people. Hear me. I don't believe I could preach a more relevant or important message this morning than the one I'm bringing to you. And here's a principle. And I hope you'll write it in your Bible there. And the principle is this, that the way back to God always begins with a return to the Word of God. The way back home for America, the way back home for Israel, the way back home for you or me as individuals, it always begins with a, a renewed hunger for the Word of God. There's an old saying, these hath God married, and no man can part dust on the Bible and drought in the heart. These two things God has married, and they never will part. Dust on the Bible, an unread Bible, an unstudied Bible, and drought, dryness, spiritual coldness and apathy in the human heart. And so I want to ask you this morning, how's your hum hunger for the Word of God? How is your appetite on this beautiful October morning? Or have you filled your life and your mind with so full, your, your, your life and mind is so full of the junk food of this world that the Word of God doesn't really have much of an 
appeal to you today. A return to God always is based upon a hunger for the Word of God. And my question, my friend, is how's your appetite today? Number two, I want you to notice with me in verse number three, the attitude with which they approach the Word of God. The attitude with which they approach the Word of God. And here in verse three, he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday. And before the men and the women and those that could understand, the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And it says it again in the following verse. What is our attitude toward the Word of God? The people here this day were very, very attentive to the Word of God. Look over in chapter 9 and verse number 3, and it gives a little more detail about what they did when they read the Word. They stood up in their place when God's Word was read. And they read in the book of the law of the, God, of, of the Lord their God one-fourth part of the day. Divide the day, 24 hours into fours, and you have six hours. They started early in the morning, and they read till the midday, the noon hour. And another fourth of the day, they worshiped and confessed their sins to God. This is a serious group of people here. Their attitude is, we're attentive, we're open, we're expecting something from the Lord today. They weren't looking at their watches while Nehemiah read. They weren't checking their email or sending text while the preacher is laboring trying to communicate the Word of God that day. They weren't slipping out the back door early so they could beat the crowd on the parking lot. A little preaching here. They were glued in. They were honed in on. They were focused on the Word of God. It was the priority. It was the reason they were there. It was the big and the important thing in their life. It must distress the Lord when we gather together to read and preach His Word and worship together that our minds are so often somewhere else. And it's not really our focus. We're going through an outward duty. But to have that hunger, that expectation, I need something from the Lord today. Boy, it's missing so often. But these folks had the, there was an atmosphere. We came to hear from God. Man of God, Ezra, read the Scripture. We're not in a big hurry. It's more important than getting home and eating that fried chicken for lunch. This is the most important thing we could possibly be involved in. And why is it so important, and why do I say it like I have said it? Because, do you know, in the book of Hebrews, please hear me. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says that without faith, it is impossible to please God that God requires one thing and one thing only ultimately of His people, and that is faith in Him, trust in Him, belief and reliance and dependency upon Him. God says, if you don't have faith in me, if you don't trust me and depend on me, then you can't please me with all the other church stuff that you do. 
And so how do I get that faith? Well, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And these dear souls stood for six hours in that blazing Israeli sun in the middle of the street and listened to a man read the Word of God to them for a fourth of the day because they said, the more we imbibe, the more we hear, the more we absorb of the Word of God, then the more our faith will be built and the stronger our faith, the sooner that God can put His blessings back on the land. My mother was a wonderful cook. And I remember she would say to my brother and I sometimes, now boys, I've, I've cooked you a delicious meal today and I want you to eat up. It One of the greatest joys I have as your mother is to see you guys eat up. And you know what? It didn't take very many words of encouragement before that table was, in fact, bare. And you know, let me say something here. We're nearing our 45th anniversary. And I want you to know something from the bottom of my heart. Tonight, before I go to bed, I will be working on next Sunday morning's message. My staff know this. This is not, I'm not boasting. I'm just telling you this is my lifestyle. And tomorrow at 7 o'clock, I'll be in my office, my little study at home with my books and my Bibles, and I'll be studying so I can give you a good meal next Sunday morning. And I'll be back on that tomorrow night after I come in from visitation. And Tuesday morning before I come for staff meeting at 9.30, my wife will tell you I've already put in two more hours And on Tuesday nights, usually I'm in my study again. And on Wednesday mornings, I read W.A. Criswell as a young preacher. He says, give the mornings to God. Don't go to the office. People will, will keep you from studying the Word of God. So Wednesday morning and Wednesday afternoon, I'll be getting ready for Wednesday night so I can give you a good meal on Wednesday night. And on Thursday, nearly all day, if I can keep appointments away, I'll be in the Word of God. My secretary will tell you. I tell her, keep the calendar clear on Thursday. That's my day to finish it off. And on Friday, I try not to study. But last night, at 10 minutes till 11, I finished it up. Now, I live my life 15, 20, 25 hours a week to prepare you a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, and a Wednesday night meal. And I don't give you appetizers here. If you don't want to, if you want appetizers, you're going to get tired of the Baptist temple. And I'm going to study and study and study and study because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And if you're going to have faith, you've got to have exposure to the Word. And it's no clearer anywhere than in this principle. But you know something? I can do all of that work and it won't do any good if you don't come wanting something from God. Dr. Lakin used to come here and preach, and he had this funny, I mean, everything was a sarcastic, funny saying, and yet so full of truth. And old Doc would say, woman came to me one day and said, Dr. Lakin, I don't get nothing out of your preaching. And he said, well, lady, do you ever bring anything to get it in? And what he meant was, you know, the preacher can serve a good meal, but you've got to have a desire to eat. You've got to have an, a hunger, and you've got to have an appetite, do you not? You know, there's passive listening to the Word of God where we just sort of sit here and, hmm, well, yeah, that's right. 
I guess he's right. That's good. That's good, Rep. Then there's active listening, where the body sits forward a little bit, maybe even. Boy, does God's Word say that? I'm going to start doing that. And the eyes and the body language say, I need this. And I'm like my mama. I'm going to cook you a good meal as best I can. And I want you to eat up. And I want you to be here every time you can because your faith is no stronger than what you know and apply from the Word of God. And number three, I want you to observe the respect and honor they gave the Word of God. Verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they made for the purpose. And beside him stood, and I'm not going to read those names again. And Ezra opened the book. And the book in those days was not a book like this. It was a scroll. So he began to unroll the scroll. He stood above the people on an elevated platform. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Why did, he, why did the people stand? To show honor and to show reverence and to show respect for God's Word. And in America today, we've lost so much of our reverence, so much of our respect. I watch people at our football games, and we play the national anthem, and they stand there and they talk. And, oh, it hurts my heart that people would not show more respect than that to our country. And you see it everywhere in life. You see children sassing their parents. And you see it in our attitude for the Scripture. You see, in those days, everybody didn't have five copies of the Bible. And it was a big, big deal when they could stand and hear somebody read the Word of God. And so they stood in reverence. And then they were responsive. Notice in verse number 6, they answered saying, Amen. And a Baptist preacher didn't invent telling people to say amen. That comes right out of the Scripture. Do you know what amen means? It means so be it. It means I agree. I agree. Rev, I'm glad you said that. Boy, that's what I believe. And it confirms that the whole body of the church, the congregation, is on the same page. It's a statement of unity. We believe that together. That's our position. And they lifted up their hands to the Lord. And then they bowed their heads, which means a pretty strong bowing of the head here, a sign of humility because it says their faces, how does it state it? They bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So the head came down. And a total atmosphere and attitude of worship, of reverence, of submission to the Lord, that we're in the presence of God when we hear His Word being read. They worshiped with their faces to the ground, the reverence to the Word of God. My mom and dad used to say to me, Bill, take that book off of the Bible. I'd lay a book down, maybe a stack of books, and I'd put the Bible on the bottom and the book on. Take that book off of the Bible. Early on, they told me, you don't put anything on the Bible. Isn't a cardinal sin to put a book on top of the Bible? I don't think so. I wouldn't rebuke you for it. 
But I did train my children that way because, you see, I want them to view this as the most singular, sacred, and holy object that they will ever encounter on this planet, honor for the Word of God. I was in Israel. I was standing about from here to the front bench, I guess, from the Wailing Wall, the place where the Jews come, you know, they write out their prayers and they stick them in the wall and, and the rabbis come and all the men have the little uh, skull caps on and so on. And I'm standing there, just a big crowd of people, probably seven, 800 people gathered around that area. And suddenly I hear this noise and it's a noise of celebration. It's a noise of joy. People are shouting and I thought, what is going on? And I turn and look, and here is a man in a black suit with a skull cap. And he has a Torah scroll. The scroll was probably this big around. It looked like an old-fashioned roll of butcher paper, only it was made out of parchment, of course. And he had it cradled like this in his arms with it here, like you would hold a baby. It had a wooden shaft going through it. It had a, uh, fringes like tassels tied to the top of the wooden shaft that was going through the scroll. It had silver and gold embroidery that had been worked into the very fabric of that parchment. And he walked through there, and there were these people with him, and I don't know who they were. I, I, I didn't ask. But he went up to a certain place in that, and I watched him place that scroll in a little platform that obviously had been made for that. And the people were shouting, and I didn't understand what they were saying. But there was a spirit of, of joy, a spirit like, like we would almost have after a win at a ball game, almost a euphoric atmosphere of celebration and joy. And I stood there as one of the most fascinating things, how they openly and publicly demonstrated their love for that scroll, for the Word of God. And it just... I can remember to this day, it's one of the most moving things I saw on that trip, the respect and the honor that they gave to the Word of God and the joy that it elicited in all of those people. In verse number 7 and 8, notice with me the way they handled the Word of God then. Note how they handled it. And so you have some other men who are assistants to Ezra. Probably they were priests. In verse number 7, we have a man named uh, Jeshua and a man named Bani, or Bonnie, and I don't know, the, I'm not going to read the rest of those, but they begin to intermingle in the crowd, obviously, and look at verse 7 at the end of it. They caused the people to understand the law, and in verse 8, they read in the book in the law of God distinctly so that people could hear and understand. And then they gave the sense of it and caused the people to understand the reading. They read distinctly. They gave the sense of it. Now, what we would say is they expounded the Word of God. They taught the Word of God. And again, as we come down to the culmination of 45 years of ministry here, I want you to understand something about our church. We refer to ourselves as a Bible-believing, Bible-centered church, Baptist church. 
Why do we put that emphasis in there? Well, obviously, not every church in the world does that. That's not the emphasis. I personally believe that's the primary role of the pastor of the church. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles in that newly formed and exploding local church there in Jerusalem, the apostles were being pressed for time. There was a group of people coming and saying, well, you're not treating us fairly in another group. They were complaining about this, and the people were demanding that they do certain ministry uh, things for them. And the disciples came before the congregation. They said, look, we need some help. We need a staff. We need some deacons. We need people who can help us because we want to give ourselves to the ministry of prayer and the study of the Word of God. Our priority is not even meeting the needs of the people. Let me say that again. Hear me clearly, please. The priority of the church is not just to minister to the needs of the people. So many think that. The first and primary priority of the Word of God of the church is that the Word of God be taught and find lodgment into the lives and the hearts and the minds of the men, the women, the children, the young people, every age group. And anything that we can do to inculcate that into them, we must do it. It is the most important thing. After those ministry items are long forgotten, after the preacher is long in his grave, the Word of God will work in the lives of the people. It must be our priority. We must give the people the sense of the Word of God. We must explain it. That's why we have the big emphasis on Sunday school. We're not a seminary. We teach the very fundamentals and basics, but we repeat them. There's always new people. There are new Christians that have to be brought along. And we're always expounding and teaching because the Word of God is our only weapon that really will last for us through eternity. It's why I preach as I do. Let me tell you, I know I read the journals. I preach at the Bible colleges and seminaries fairly often. I know what the trends are. And the big trend today is even in some of our Bible colleges and so on, we're teaching preachers, we call it narrative preaching, meaning people won't listen to an exposition of the Word of God. Get up and tell them your story. Tell them about some event. Tell them about going to the ball game Friday night or yesterday where you went fishing or something. And engage the people with narrative preaching. True, there's a lot of people don't have an, a, 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 an appetite for the Word of God. But please listen to me. I've made it my mission in my ministry to stand here to be well prepared to do my very best before the Lord that I open the book of God and I preach the book. And perhaps I could do some things that would be more entertaining but they don't change your life like the Word of God does. It's quick and powerful and sharper than the two-edged sword. And my goal is to give you an honest and fair and, and truthful exposition of the Word of God almost every time you enter these doors. A man said to me, Pastor, we were talking about his church. He said, you know, I'm not real happy in my church. My, my pastor, he preaches skyscraper sermons. 
I said, for heaven's sakes, what is a skyscraper sermon? He said he reads a text and then he tells 38 stories. Reads the text and then 38 stories. Skyscraper. He meant, I'm hungering to hear the truth of God's Word. I want to hear that. Turn to the book of Jeremiah right quick. I think we have time for verse 23 or chapter 23. This was the issue. Now, Jeremiah lived before Nehemiah. They're out of order in the Bible, but in terms of time, he lived a little bit before. And Jeremiah said in chapter 23, this is his indictment against the preachers. The indictment is what? They're not teaching my people the Word of God. The reason the people have gone into idolatry, the reason they don't observe the Sabbath, the reason they're not godly in their lifestyles, they're not being taught the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 23, listen to him rail against his fellow prophets. Verse number 16, thus saith the Lord of hosts, hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the, word, of the mouth of the Lord. Verse 22, if the prophets had stood in my counsel and caused my people to hear my words, then the people would have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their doings, but they didn't. Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse number 32, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord. And do tell them, tell people about their experiences. And cause my people to err by their lies and by their lightness. Yeah, they're entertaining, they're funny, they're light. It's not too heavy down there at that church. Yet I sent them not, nor commanded them. Therefore they shall not profit this people at all, says the Lord. Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, one thing now, young man, I've given you all these instructions. Preach the Word. People are not changed by you telling them your experiences. And I like a good joke, but nobody ever got their life changed listening to a joke. Preach the Word. Preach the Word, young preacher. Preach the Word. Spurgeon, the great English preacher, said, quote, It is God's Word, not our comment upon it, that saves souls. Souls are slain by the sword, not by the scabbard or the tassels that adorn the hilt of it. The adversaries of God must fall before the Word as chaff before the fire. Oh, for wisdom to keep closer and closer to that which the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so now for these weeks I've been preaching to you on a shelf by itself. Revelation. The Word of God didn't come from men. God Himself one day determined I'm going to reveal certain things about myself that man will never know unless I tell him. And so I will reveal that to him. Revelation. Inspiration. The second message that God breathed the Scriptures to holy men of old who spake as they were moved, borne along by the Holy Spirit. 
preservation. How could God maintain the purity and the integrity, the trustworthiness of the Scripture for 3,500 years unless He personally preserved the truthfulness of His Word? And His preservation is just as much a miracle as is His inspiration. Inspiration, He gave it to us. Preservation, we still have a reliable copy of it. I talked to you about that. I talked to you last week about how the Word of God is sufficient for all things that pertain to life and godliness. I talked to you about how the Word of God is able to make us wise unto salvation. I've spoken to you about the evidences that we have. I just read, I went to the bookstore yesterday afternoon. I bought a book by a lawyer named David Limbaugh. I think he's Rush Limbaugh's brother. He lives in Missouri. And I began to read it last night. And I, I, I tell you, I recommend that book. You want to buy somebody a Christmas present that can make a difference? Buy Jesus on Trial. That's the name of the book by David Limbaugh. And I told Mr. Roseman about it, and he said, well, I'm reading that book too. And we both commented, that's one of the most wonderful books I've ever read. And I, I, I couldn't lay it down. I was late in my study preparation because that book fascinated me. Jesus on Trial by David Limbaugh. A skeptical lawyer becomes convinced of the validity of the Bible. It's inerrancy in the truth of God. And so this seven-week series so far, I want you to love the Word and honor the Word and most of all, obey the Word of God. And lastly, number five, notice their response to the Word of God in verses 10 and 12. The people were so moved, they became under conviction, if you will notice in verse number 10. And it says that the people began to weep. And in verse number 9, they wept. All the people wept when they heard the words of the law. God was so powerful on that assembly that it brought them to tears. They wept when they heard. And they wept so much that finally Ezra and Nehemiah came before them and said, look, we're getting ready to have a big celebration, a big feast. And they had to remind them that they had wept enough that the joy of the Lord in verse number 10 is their strength. And they want them now to go and to celebrate the goodness and greatness of God. And so they told him, quit mourning. Quit mourning. Rejoice in the good things that the Lord has done for us. And they had a great revival. And the nation became strong again and endured for over 500 years until after the time of Christ. Listen, let me conclude. Look up here at me and hear me. You can never divorce the Christian life from the Bible. You can never divorce the Christian life, not this much from the Scripture. I'm afraid we have a really bad error in thinking among evangelical, even Bible-believing Christians like this church in our country today. I believe that somehow we have begun to equate the Christian life with attending a church and living a moral life. Let me say it again. 
because it might be that someone's sitting here and you, you would define the Christian life as going to church, maybe receiving Christ as your Savior. Then after that, we go to church and we live a moral life. And I'm going to tell you, that accounts for the problems we have today. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is you come to know Christ as your Lord and your Savior. And the simplest, most basic terms I can say is then you begin to open the Word of God because this is how He communicates with you. And you read the Bible privately. You study it. You come to church and you read and study the Bible corporately with other believers. And then you believe it. Faith cometh by hearing the Word. You believe it. And by that I mean you put genuine faith and confidence and trust in it. You don't walk out of here saying, well, that was just Bill Monroe's opinion. Well, some of it was. But you can't say that. That was just God's opinion. You read and study the Bible seriously, privately, and corporately. And then you say, Lord, I surrender to you. Amen. And your word will become the measurement of my thoughts my emotions, my responses, my philosophies. That's what the child-rearing seminar is about this afternoon. Am I going to rear my children the way God says? Or am I going to rear my children the way the world is rearing their children? And it's not enough just to believe intellectually, to give intellectual assent Because that's not belief in the full sense. That's only a part of belief. Genuine faith in Christ is an all-out, 24-hour, seven-day-a-week commitment to God. Where you trust Him for the forgiveness of your sins and for guidance in every part of your life. Listen, one of the most powerful statements I could ever make, and I'm through. The only part of the Bible that I believe is the part I act on. The only part of the Bible you believe is the part you put in practice. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.